listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey listeners, from the title of this episode, you can likely tell that we talk about gun violence, as well as incarceration and substance use. Lionel Irving grew up with grief, but grief isn't a word that he grew up hearing or talking about. His uncle Ricky was shot and killed by the police in 1975. His cousin Donald was killed in 1999 by a rival gang. His mother died of a sudden illness when Lionel was 20. In the past year alone, Lionel has gone to over 40 funerals, many of those for young people killed by gun violence. Lionel is the founder of an organization in Portland, Oregon called Love is Stronger which is dedicated to supporting gang-impacted families and communities and building healing, accountability, and safety. While his work is focused on interrupting gun violence, it's work that is also rooted in grief. Lionel is a gang veteran who grew up in a family involved with drugs and gangs. He started carrying a gun as a young teen, and when he was 18, he shot and killed another teen. He went to prison in 2004 for manslaughter. While in prison, he connected with mentors and a therapist who helped him to build awareness of the role grief and trauma played in his life and the lives of those around him. This inspired him to reimagine his life and to dedicate his time and energy to helping others do the same. Growing up, Lionel's mother was the only one who really saw him, who smiled when he entered a room and believed in his capacity for making a difference in the world. Lionel's commitment to his work of helping kids and families interrupt cycles of violence is one way he is now living into the vision she had for him. Lionel, thank you for taking time to be part of Grief Out Loud today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. What, how do you want to introduce yourself? What feels important for listeners to know about who you are? So I would say that I'm a gang veteran and I'm a father, a community advocate, a family man, and somebody who believes in the American way of the second chance because I'm, I'm a part of the second chance that something that we hear a lot as kids is the American way is you can have a second chance, but um, people don't get to experience it often. I'm one of the people who got to experience actually having a second chance of coming back into society, back into community, back into family. And uh, I'd like to share that experience and also keep that door open for other people and let people know how important it is to give their family members a second opportunity to be who they really are. And speaking of family, what what do you want us to know or what do you feel like sharing about about your mom? Uh, my mother, uh, that's that's my queen, right? She's, she's my role model, my blueprint. I watched my mother come from the bottoms of, you know, drug addiction and the street lifestyle to... Um, getting into a program, becoming the program director at Stay Clean, getting me and my brothers and sisters back. There's seven of us. My little brother, Dwayne, passed away not too long ago, rest his soul. 
And uh, she just always was a champion for, you know, you can do better, always a champion for seeing the best part of me. She's always seen the best, greatest parts of me, even when nobody else could. And so I always see myself, when I look in the mirror, I try to see myself as my mother see me. Like, I want to be that person every day, that person that she smiled when I walked in the room. And it, and I could look back and see when I would walk in the room, people would frown, but she would smile. And, you know, that would, that's, I can always visually remember that so much. And so I just love her for loving me when I wasn't an easy person to love. And Lionel, how old were you when, when your mom died? My mother died, I was um, about 20. Yeah, maybe about 20, 21. It was unexpected, but she had lived through a life of addiction where her veins wasn't uh, moving properly through blood. So she passed away, man, like in the blink of an eye. One day she said she had a headache, and a couple hours later she was dead. And it really sent a shockwave through our family because she was our chain link. You know, my mother was the type of person that made all of us, her kids, feel like she was our best friend. We were her favorite. All my brothers and sisters would tell you they were the favorite, but I really was the favorite. But let them tell their story, you know what I mean? If from that time when you were 20 and your mom dies so suddenly, what did grief feel like then for you, and how does the grief for your mom feel now? Grief felt like then for me like, like I was lost because she was somebody who always, you know, pointed me in the right directions. Even when I was running the streets, she would call me and give me advice on, like, get home. The cops robbers out right now, you know, uh, invest your money, um, you know, go to school. She just always was somebody who wanted me to be the right person. And so I felt lost from when she passed away. And I also was angry because there was a lot of things that I never got to say to her. And I told her so many things, but there were some things that I held behind because I didn't want her to be ashamed of me and I know she thought or felt like I just told her everything and so when she passed away I was sad that I wasn't able to um, tell her some of the things that I had did and, and you know give her let her take me through the process because when I would tell her things that she would take me through the process why'd you do it what was you thinking what was the outcomes how do you feel you know what I mean and that was help my moral compass a lot. And so when my mother passed away, I feel like my moral compass also took a dive because I didn't have that person that was that accountability person to be like, don't do that. That's not how we operate. And so I, I really made a lot of real poor decisions, especially in that year after she passed away. You know, I started self-medicating heavily with alcohol and marijuana, uh, smoking sherm, if you don't know, that's embalming fluid. And so that when you in that type of cloud, in that type of haze, wrapped around grief, you want it to be contagious. You really want like you want it to be a cold where you can give it to somebody else and then I can heal. And so that's how I was looking at my grief as ass. I wanted to just give it away to somebody. And so that made me kind of like a predator to people. You know what I mean? Because it's just so overwhelming. And it's like yeah. there's got to be some way for someone else to hold some of this for me or take some of this pain for me. Yes, and not knowing, because that what is grief, really, that's, that is how you can heal yourself from grief, is getting with people who can help you analyze, process some of that grief. They're actually taking some of it for you, right? But that's the, that's the uh, positive and healthy way. The negative way and the unhealthy way is to think that you're going to, um, you don't even think. 
You're just in a grief mindset where you're triggered, you're traumatized now. And so now you're making trauma, traumatized and triggered decisions inside of your grief. And for me, those are never good decisions. Those are bad decisions all across the board. If it's womanizing, drug using, uh, trying to make uh, legal money, think that's going to heal the process. So, And now, you know, I feel like I, I miss my mother dearly. Still sad. I, that's a wound that will never heal. But it's like a happy grief because I'm just happy she was. I'm happy that she's seen me. I'm happy that she always invested in me with words of affirmation because that was not even something I even knew was a concept until I learned what words of affirmation was. Like, oh, my mother was invested in me with words of affirmation and she knew the power of it. So, and I'll take what grief now is also a call to action because I want to be how my mother was for me to the people of Monster Conference. I want to be somebody that can take them through the process, that can pull some of their grief from them, that can feed them words of affirmation in their times of need, and just have that unconditional love, no matter what kind of struggles they're going through, what kind of poor choices that they make, you know, knowing that they can come to me and receive the same kind of love that I received from my mother. So I know you were 20 when your mom died. What do you remember about some of your early experiences with grief as a child? Uh, man, I think the I, I I was I was born into a grief household because in 1975 the Portland police killed my uncle Ricky, and he was 16 year old young man and they shot him in the back of the head and that created a vibration of grief inside of our family where all my brothers and sisters were born inside that vibration where it was anger you know for the people who didn't look like us where it was a fear of people who didn't look like us and it was like a uh, my granddad would be really uh, stern about who you brought to the house, who you engaged with. You know, he didn't even like the teachers or nobody to call the house. If they didn't, if they wasn't, they didn't look like us. Then he really didn't want to mess with them. And I never really knew it was because of my uncle Ricky had got killed. So I just thought granddad was like, you know, didn't like people who didn't look like us. But really, you know, he was traumatized and he just was in his mind. That's how he was going to protect us is keeping us around our family, our community members versus people who are from the outside. And what that did is create a, a mindset in some of my brothers and sisters and myself as separatists, because now we don't trust people who don't look like us because of my grandfather's struggles from losing his son, from his anger. Often I used to hear my uncle rest his soul. He passed away. He was, he was my really my cousin. I call him my uncle because he raised me. But when we would sit on my mother's porch after she had got clean. She passed away, but we still had the house. So the porch was like our spot. And he would always say, you know, when he get old and gray and he done, he did everything he wanted to do, he would go kill a police officer. He was saying that as far as I can remember. And just imagine what kind of energy that got on a young mind of somebody who's looking up to you. And so... You know, grief started off early. Um, I grew up in an addiction household where my mother, before we got put with my grandpa on them, my grandma, and I seen people overdose, you know what I mean? I seen women get abused physically. I seen my mother get beat up a lot of times. Well, the grief of seeing my mother get beat up, it has long-lasting effects. Like if I'm in a, a situation, I'm around a man who is not treating a woman right, I cannot not say nothing. And it's a very dangerous thing. Some I have two guns put out on me before because of that. And my, my family like, man, why are you getting involved? Because it's just, I can't even think not to say nothing because I just, I feel like that's my mother 
getting hit right now. And I, you're not going to do it in front of me. And if you ain't going to, she's not going to respect her, you're going to respect me. That's the mindset that I have around that. I know that's a uh, byproduct of carrying some of that. And I feel like in our community, this is not something we talk about. We don't go see psychs. We don't get to unload this stuff, for lack of a better word. I'm thinking about how what could be perceived as like a personality trait or a characteristic or uh, just how someone is in the world, in your experience was really, uh, a lot of that was formed by grief and loss experiences that weren't processed or talked about or shared in that more uh, direct way. Yes, yes. And that's one one of the main reasons why in this time, we we are experiencing so much grief right now. I just lost my nephew about four or five months ago. I haven't been to a funeral this year. I didn't go to my nephew's funeral because in 22 and 21, I went to a total of 50 funerals. And my son and my nephews and my nieces, they knew all these young men and women. So they're in a, in a, in a grief state constantly. But since what I've been through and I know I'm not processing it, how it can firm, form some of your actions, what people will think is your personality, but it's actually not. So I'll make sure that we just processing. We talking about it, right? We we talking about it, we talking about it, we talking about it because I know that's the way to get it out. And, I, and in our household, words of affirmation and self-talk and visualization. That's what I preach to my kids. I give them words of affirmation, I expect them back because it's habit forming. So I ask them, hey man, you haven't gave me a word of affirmation today. You know what I mean? Because I want them to, I want that to be embedded in them. Because I'm gonna give it to them all day long, all night, all morning. I wake them up. I'm gonna kiss them on their forehead. I'm gonna give them all the love that I can possibly squeeze out of this heart of mine. And I want that to translate over to them. So when they get into circles who are experiencing sorrow and trauma and grief, that they can have that capacity to still give the unconditional love that is needed. And looking back over how kind of like your adolescence, young adulthood unfolded, what are the ways that you can see that maybe grief was a part of the way your life unfolded in terms of like the choices you made, where you ended up? Oh, yeah, man. So, you know, grief is is it's, it's a word that you don't hear often. Right, you hear like trauma and, and sorrow and all these other words, but grief is like the root cause word, right? And so throughout throughout my this experience of, of operating in a mindset of grief, I made some of the poorest choices. I made the worst choices that I'd known to men. And my main choices that I made that was the worst one wrapped around grief is when they killed my cousin Donald Means. He was like a father to me. He raised me. He showed me how to be a man. You know, he protected me. And in my mind, this man asked me every day, if something happened to me, Momo, take care of my kids. If I go to jail, Momo, take care of my kids. If I die, Momo, take care of my kids. This is his dying wish. Every day he asked this of me after my 18th birthday. Soon as something happened to him, I didn't have the capacity to think about what my real responsibilities was wrapped around his life that has ended because he had three children. All I was worried about is how I could make myself feel better. And I went back to my old patterns of trying to pass this grief on. So retaliation is a must. 
where I come from, because we got a reactionary mindset. Somebody hits you, you hit them back. What happens here stays in here. Retaliation is a must. Somebody, there's all these rules that if this happens, then you do this, you do this, you do this. And so I went back into that pattern, and I thought the only way that I would feel better is to make that family feel the same kind of grief that we felt. So I, I pried on this family's house for about two weeks. I waited outside this house three times, three separate times, waiting for somebody to come out. And on the third time somebody came out, and I jumped out, and I shot and killed them. It was the worst choice I ever made, and I thought it was going to make me feel better when I did it because I wanted to do it, but it made me feel even worser. It made me feel all the, you know how they say your life flashes before your eyes? That's the true thing. When I pulled that trigger and I seen the results, I already knew what the outcome was going to be. And so I know now that if I wasn't in a grief mindset, and I was in an in a, a environment where I could process this because somebody would have asked me, hey, what did your cousin ask of you? Right. What, what, how do you how can you honor him? And those would have been some of the answers that I would have been able to come up with. Hey, take care of his kids. Make sure I don't get myself in trouble so his kids don't fall into the system and be statistics. And guess what? They statistics. They in the system. They own drugs. And a lot of that is a result of me not dealing with my grief right. Now they got grief. Now it's just, and grief is like generational curse, basically. How it gets passed down and passed on, even if it's not directly experienced in that way. Yes. So in, in that moment, like looking back, right, you're able to see like, oh, I was in a grief mindset. I wasn't able to see bigger what was happening. I just was like, this will immediately make, make me feel better. Mm-hmm. And then that recognition of like, oh, this made it worse, I think was the word that you used. And, and then there's other experiences that you've had where you've talked about, I don't know what the right metaphor would be. Light bulb doesn't seem quite right. But I know you and I've had conversations where you were able to start to see your experience, like all the things you had gone through that led up to that moment differently. And that's really shaped how you are in the world now. So I wondered if you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's like, you know, I, I always say my comprehension because I didn't have the highest reading level or uh, writing level when I went to prison. So um, digesting information was something that was not was foreign to me. So, so I didn't digest a lot of information unless it was told to me or I heard it on a song or on TV. It was never, uh, oh, if you read something, for the re- I'm an avid reader, it puts your brain and your body in a mindset, in a and these endorphins that go through you that allow you to process things because now you're reading things and people are handling situations different ways and allows you to process how would I handle how did I handle situations that were similar to mine and you get to see things right but what really woke me up was going to the psych and seeing Dr. Dollywall and when he gave me the the uh I did the e, the EID treatment where they follow your eye around they try to get your early hood traumas I thought he was trying to hypnotize me, so I was faking him out. <laughs> you know, I wasn't going to let him have me walk around clucking and all that old good stuff. But uh, he called me on my stuff, man. It was like, you faking? Get out of here. You know what I mean? And, uh, I was in prison, so I wasn't really tripping about getting out of here because the only reason I went because an older gentleman who was mentoring me, helping me get to the stage that I am now, knew that I needed to get some mental health treatment because I wasn't able to sleep because I had started reading. And so my comprehension level had got started going up and I had started processing the choices that I made, 
why I'm in this prison cell, laying on this bunk right now. And I was not feeling good about myself. You know, all the stuff that my mother, because my mother told me those things. I felt good about myself up until I got into prison. And I had to realize that I'm not that person that she was telling me that she's seen that I could be. And so I wasn't feeling good about myself because I took care of my family, everything on the streets. You know, my family loves me. But the person that my mother seen was not that person. That, my mother didn't see a criminal. She seen a king. She seen somebody who could move the masses and somebody who could have impact if they would apply themselves. And I know she's seen that because she told me that. And so once I started having that moral compass, started ticking on my own, because we need to be able to turn our own moral compass all the way up. We know It's good if you got somebody to help you keep it up, but the real thing is to get your own moral compass, get yourself together so you can know what's right and what's wrong. And once I started having that, uh, my moral compass started ticking upward, I couldn't sleep. I could not sleep. My nightmares were so bad. I mean, cold sweats every night. I could not sleep. I mean, I seen this young man's face, Tommy Brockman. I got to say his name. I'm sorry, I, I didn't say his name the first time. Tommy Brockman, I seen his face so many times. I see, I see my son then I, with his face. I see my sister with his face, right? And I see myself getting up, pulling the trigger. His recurring dream. It's the worst dream you can ever. I, I haven't had it so long. I don't even want to even be in that dream state, but I could not sleep. Did not want to go to sleep for that matter. And so I went to see the psych, Dr. Dollywall. He helped me realize what trauma was. That's how I learned that I was traumatized. But it really, I was half suffering with a lot of grief. Not Nobody uses that word. And so uh, he didn't really wake me up to operate in a grief mindset. It was like I was operating, I was traumatized, and I was triggered, right? And I was sad. See, they, use, they say sad instead of grief. So, But it don't have the same, in my mind, power. We sad. I was sad today when I got up and my son didn't want to go and I knew I had to get somewhere. You know what I mean? Like, come on, man. I need to, I got moves to make. Right? But I felt grief when my nephew got killed. You know what I mean? It was beyond sadness. I'm sad right now after I was able to get over or through the grief because I'm still grieving, but this is grieving towards sadness now, if that makes sense. You know, so, yeah, once you wake up to it, though, and you start recognizing that you are struggling, then you can get the help that you need. Because in my mind, grief is not something that you tackle alone. You need to have loving, supporting individuals that understand what you're going through. If they could be going through it with you, I feel like you guys are even more powerful because now you guys are healing together and understanding that we're coming through a grieving moment and we need to operate in a, a mindset that's not making grieving decisions. You know, that's why you see families sometimes fight when their loved ones pass away or uh, their house burns down. It's a, it's a big event that's causing a lot of grief and sorrow. They're infighting because they really need to process and they're trying to pass their grief off on each other, blame game, you know, so, yeah. I'm really sitting with this image you've created for me of this idea of like grief you know, grief in, in my mind is almost like a living, breathing thing that we now have in our world. And we can like make friends with our grief. We can tend to our grief or we can try to foist our grief off on someone else. Like, mm -hmm. can you take this for a while? And I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective of trying to, uh, you know, think about people like pushing grief away, but this idea of like actively trying to push it 
onto someone else or something else. Yeah, either be drugs. Uh, a lot of people try to cloud their grief with uh, self-medicating, right? Uh, it just clouds your brain. You don't really get to get through the process. Or in my environment or my world, it's actually giving it to somebody. I'm hurting, and you're opposition to me. I've been waiting for you to give this grief to you. It's going to make me feel better, right? And it never did. You know, thinking back, it, I never felt better past. And I used to always say this, which was uh, one of my taglines when I went to prison. I love my family to death, but I press a hard line on my opposition. And that really was just my mindset of if you were against me, then I, you were somebody I could deliver some of this grief to to make me feel better. And once I realized that that was I, what I was doing, it made my it changed my whole perspective on life, on violence, and completely, and how that to deal with you know traumatic events. It completely changed the way that I, I operate because I know that you're never going to feel good hurting somebody else. How I know, I tried it, so you're not. That's not going to work. And for two, you're not going to even get through a phase of grief where you can't tend to it, water it, and then use it as power to, you know, flourish to the next level, unless you're processing it. You're talking about it. You have somebody that you can relieve your mind of the sorrow because, you know, our mind has all these endorphins in our body. You got this in the back of your head, the fight or flight. I feel like when you're in grief mode, you only working with the back of your head. You're not working with the front where you're making logical decisions. It's like, hey, what, what can I do instantly right now to make this go away, feel better, anything to not feel like this? And so knowing that sometimes you got to feel like this in order to get through it. It's not, it's not a quick fix, you know? And so now I know it's not a quick fix. I can help my nephews and my son them process. Every day we process, they don't even know it. Right. We process every day because I know that they're sad. I know that I know they just lost one of their best friends. It was their cousin. He was at our house every day. Right. I seen him in the thing crying. I was crying with him. So I know. So I know that it's my responsibility to make sure that they don't go out of my household and use our DNA with our generational curses to pass that grief on to somebody else in the hopes of they're going to feel better. Because we, it's, a, it's a fact. When you're not feeling good and you sorrow and you got grief, you don't want that. You want to get off of that. And so to get off of that the fast way is always self-destructive. So I don't want my kids or, or my family members to have to self-destruct in order to just live with their grief. Because it don't really go nowhere. I'm wondering, Lionel, you mentioned like every day. You're helping them to process, even if they may not know it. And I'm wondering what types of questions are you asking them or what ways are you starting conversations to invite that? I love that question. One thing we do is we say their names. Like my nephew, Dante, we say their names. We don't talk about them as past tense, right? And I know Dante was a little older than them, so they looked up to him. And I always fed Dante, so I know he fed them. So it's like, you know, how they say, what would Jesus do? What would Dante do? How would Dante, you know, feel about you, you know, not going to school and, and going to be a dropout? Or Dante feel about you smoking all this weed and you not doing your work? 
or out there hurting somebody. Or, you know, do you remember when Dante did this? It's just like just talking about it, making it a more acceptable subject, right? And then they always, as soon as I bring his name up, I don't have to say much more. They're going to have a thousand stories. They're going to laugh, cry, right? But at the end of the conversation, all of us are going to feel better. And so that's just that, that's simple. We keep his name. We keep all our loved ones' names and lives. But then it's like, what are you doing? How are you handling it? Are you working out? Are you reading? You want to talk? Like, there's so many things. Don't get stuck on the video game all day long. I'm not going to allow that because I think that's like a, another drug. So it's like making sure that I'm uh, aware of how they're spending their time. Right? Don't sit in that room all day long. I believe in going outside. That's why we got basketball hoop out there. Go on outside, walk around the block. Just, you know, making sure that, that I see them. I'm aware of them. I love them to death. And they know that, you know, it's good choices got to be made. And they understand, like, they know they sad. You know, I haven't been using the word grief with them, but I am now. And so they can even have an even deeper understanding. I'm wondering, what do you think is different or unique or not about the grief that comes from gun violence, a death by gun violence, versus a death from cancer or an illness or a suicide or a car accident. Because I think there's a lot of talk of like, we hear so much in the news, right, of like increased rates of gun violence and a lot of focus on that. And I, I always step back and think like, is it the same? Is it different? And I'm curious what your thoughts are. I think what makes it different with gun violence is because with gun violence, you got somebody to have grief angry at. You got somebody that you can say, I can give them this grief and they deserve it because they cause grief on our family. It's so you can rationalize it versus if it's a disease or even a car accident because, you know, you could be mad at that, but, like, either the driver probably going to go to jail. It's, like, kind of hard to, you know, it's like a, a car accident, they would call it accident. You know what I mean? But really it was intentional if you were doing something, you know, against the law, if you were drink driving or whatever it was, but it's an accident. But a gun violence is intentional. You pulled up, you pulled the trigger. Now I got somebody to focus all my anger and sorrow on, and not just that person, because what if he went to jail? Because the dude who killed my cousin went to jail. But I was I still wanted his family to feel the pain, to feel the grief that I thought once they felt it, I would feel better. How many young men are running around here thinking that right now? Right? And so that's why the gun violence is increasing. Every time somebody dies, that's why I say, that's why we go to the murder scenes. Because that's where the new shooter is created at. They say, how you know, Lionel? That's where I was created at, at the murder scene. They killed my friend Patrick Curry. I was 14 years old, right? I saw, the, I saw somebody for the first time when I was 14 years old because they killed my friend. And that was immediately a way for me to deal with that type of grief. And that was almost, not only that, it was expected because we got a reactionary mindset. We got all these rules. Somebody hit you, you hit them back. Retaliation is a must, all these rules that are just going to, they have no thought process. You know, you're not thinking about your responsibility or the consequences. You're thinking like this happened and immediately this has to happen. So that's like the realest difference with gun violence grief is that there's these, all these rules wrapped around it already. See, if a car accident happens, 
this don't have to do this. If you have cancer, then you don't have to do this. If somebody gets shot in your family, then there's going to be people in your circumference that's saying retaliation is a must. What are you waiting on? You feel me? And so that's the biggest thing. And that's how we, Portland, all of us as community members, as the police will stand down. Don't let miss that the police was on stand down for about a year and a half, almost two years. So they wanted to get the money back up. It's coming back now. So they're doing a lot of more arresting. But while they were in a stand down mode, while the protest was going on and COVID, all that stuff, we allowed so many murders to happen without no resources going to those families. Because all everybody in that family now, especially young men, are potential shooters. If we know they're potential shooters, what are we waiting on? And we waited so long. We're still waiting. The city's still wringing their hands, right? We're still dying at a high clip. Look, if somebody gets shot, then we got to look at their mom or their dad, whoever their parents were, if they were youth. If they wasn't youth, then who are their immediate family, their kids, their lady? But just all these other layers, their nephews, their cousins, all those young men and women are now in a state of retaliation is a must. And if we don't get to them down, down, down the stream, all of them, then we potentially got to worry about him killing one of our kids as he matures to be 13 or 14 years old. Because the shooters are getting younger. They shoot now. I shot at 14. I was, I was a pretty young guy. But now they're shooting at 12 years old. Like younger than that, they catching nine year olds with guns, and not just guns. Like I got my dad's gun at school. Like I got a gun on me to make it home. You know, what I mean? it's a big difference. A lot of what we talked about so far is, you know, how you were personally transformed by the recognition of trauma and grief in your life and the role that it played, and now how you're taking that knowing into supporting your immediate family and community, but you're also doing work in the bigger community and uh, through your organization, Love is Stronger. And I, could you share a little bit about kind of the origin of that organization and the work that you're doing? Yeah, man, Love is Stronger is actually, it's, it's my baby. I, I, I'm a firm believer in the power of love. I'm not a real religious person. My uh, thing is I'm spiritual. I've read so many different religious books, the Bible, the Quran, Buddhism, humanism, the nation of Islam, the five percenters, noble Drew Ali. I just read so many different religions. And at the core of all of them was love, right? They had so many, so many similarities, so many different things, aspects. But one thing that always was on one accord with all of them was love. And so in prison, I started off saying love is stronger. And I, I was just using that as letting guys know we're going to make it home from this. Through our power to love we have for our family, we're going to better ourselves, and we're going to make it home. And so I created my first prison program in 2011. It was called What It Do. We help assist teens in too deep out. And it was all about helping the young kids that come to prison not have to join the prison gangs. So I know there were so many young guys that came into prison that resembled me. Uh, that was a great prison program. I got out of prison in 2017. It was not a great street program. So it didn't take really well in the streets. So I pivoted and uh, joined up with a couple of business partners. We created Man Building Men, another great program. It was all wrapped around uh, filling the generational gaps between the black men because a lot of our brothers was in prison. A lot of men had to go to prison to become men. 
Young men have to go to prison to come out as a man. And so that's unacceptable. We're going to build our men right here on the streets. We're not going to wait till they have to go in there and meet these great brothers. They come out and be like Lionel. It's too late. You, you got a chance, but Lionel 40, right? Let's imagine if I had got this energy at 15, 16. Um, it was great till COVID came. We couldn't meet in person no more. We never heard of Zoom before. It did. So Zoom was the thing. So I was kind of like in limbo. And it made me really evaluate what I wanted to do. Because now it's like I've been out like three years now, four years. It's like, what are you going to do to get to, you know, the impact that you want? Because I always wanted to come back to the community and atone for the trauma that I gave in it and the generation of curses that I created inside my family. And so I began to, with Love is Stronger GV, I said, let me, what are we doing right now? What is the biggest thing going on? And what came to my mind was reimagination. And I was stuck on reimagination. I'm like, what does that mean? What is reimagination? What? And then I was like watching all these, the healthcare system was messed up. The education system messed up. The prison system messed up. The way we view community is messed up. And so I said, man, my calling is to reimagine these things to help the process. Because I'm here, this is my generation, where they're reimagining the healthcare system. They're reimagining what the education system like. They're reimagining the prison system all down the line. So how can I have impact? So the first thing I did is, from the Joyce Floyd protest or riot, however you, however you see it, that's the first epiphany that I had that people who didn't look like me cared about me. Because even when I came home, because prison feeds the uh, separation. So when I was in prison, I was fed separation too. So when I even I got all these tools to come home and be successful, but I never was able to tackle the separation from my early, early childhood grief from my granddaddy. People didn't look like me. I did not trust them. Cause, and then it was reinforced by that my choices. Every time I did something, I deal with people who didn't look like me, but they was like the law enforcement. So, of course, they don't. <laughs> they ain't come to give you no hug. They come to give you some cuffs, right? And so it just reinforced that belief system. But I turned on that news station, and I seen all those allies downtown Portland. And Portland was created as the white Mecca, right? They got laws on the books right now that's it's ridiculous. And if you didn't see that, you would believe that, I'm not welcomed here. It's only 2.2% black men in the city of Oregon, in the state of Oregon, the state. And so people will believe that you're not welcomed here. You don't have no allies and all these things that, you know, the systematic racism that we've just been dealing with. But what I seen was an epiphany. I seen a whole bunch of people who didn't look like me, and they were screaming, Black Lives Matter. So I didn't really know what it meant at the time, but I knew I was black, and I knew I mattered, right? And... I didn't know that all these people that didn't look like me were my friends and family. The first thing I did is go downtown. I got on the microphone every time I could get on there. I came up with the ally training. That was my first like program for love for love is stronger was to reimagine or to reimagine community. So my first thing was to do go meet people who don't look like you and see how you guys align. That's how I met the Rotarians. I love the Rotarians. If you don't know them, they're uh, one of the biggest service groups in the universe. And they're traditionally older white men and white women. Um, I've been in so many programs as a child that they funded, which that blew my mind so much. And I was lightweight mad at them because 
the how I was getting fed, the people who didn't look like me, didn't care about me, them being in the shadows helped reinforce it. So I first I tasked them to come out the shadows and let our kids see you. And not only our kids, but your kids and our kids, we need to mingle. So we started doing it. I met them, went to some Rotarian groups. We started doing the inter-community gathering. And the premise was I would get 10 of my guys who look like me, act like me, come from where I come from. And my partner, Captain Ron, would get 10 of his friends who are like him. And the Rotarians are all older gentlemen and women who are well off. I don't know if they had struggles before or not, but at this point in their life, they got to figure it out. All my guys have been out of prison, coming through addiction. They just now turn into a corporate America, basically. And so it was a really big contrast of community members. And the craziest thing is, we hit it off so well. But we have, but now we start off with like 20 people, we have to 60 and 70 people. And now we involve the youth. And so that was one program that's going great. We got the interview together. We have a social justice Zoom every Saturday. And so my next thing was to uh, bring the gangs, because I'm a gang veteran. The gangs, Crips and Bloods, they started off as community servants, right? That's what they were created for. They weren't created to be at war with each other. They were always our warrior class. They started off as community service. They were people who would protect you from the police. They, they had a role. When we veered away from that role through the drug selling, when they got the money, when the drugs really came around is when the gun and the violence came around because it became now territorial and then we need the money now. Money, 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 money. And so it, it just warped the gang's whole mission statement. So I need to reimagine that back to what it was. That's where we came up with our intervention process. We got gang veterans. Again, I'm a gang veteran. A gang veteran is somebody who's still aligned with his neighborhood, but he's no longer confined to identify from one neighborhood. He's no longer a crip or a blood. Now he's from all the neighborhoods, right? He's tasked with giving wise counsel to anybody that is from this lifestyle, around this lifestyle, or looking to be in this lifestyle as a gang member. And he has transcended criminality. That's what's going to take us down. You can't break the law and try to save people. That's, we don't do that. We're not going to be in no gray areas. And, um, but that whole verbiage, all the older gang members that want to be positive and want to give back, they love it. Because we don't deal with ex and former gang members. Because when I was a kid, Every time somebody came in and said there was an extra former gang member, I don't want to hear nothing else he had to say. He couldn't handle the pressure. Then if I say, hey, what's that? what neighborhood are you from? He say, Crip, and I was a blood. Or he say, blood, and I was a Crip. Now he got a double strike. You never know good. So when the kid asked me, hey, Lionel, what gang you from? I tell from all the gangs because every hood's the same. And it, it makes them think. Um, I have 11 employees. They're all gang veterans. They're tasked with de-escalating conflicts from their peers, uh, de-escalating retaliations. And then I asked them to document it so we can have proof. Our standard is shots not fired. Then right now I have 60 kids in my youth program. But what make my kids special to me and our organization is that they're all gang descendants. Right? We want kids that are in this lifestyle that go home and experience trauma every day. Violence, drugs, guns, you name it. When they come to school and act normal. These kids got tools already they don't even know they got. Let's help them hone them tools. And most of those kids are already leaders in their schools because they've already got a maturity level because they got so much stuff they can't talk about. And so we identify those kids and then we, we go full court press, get them into our ranks. And then they're tasked to do the same thing as the adults, de-escalate conflicts with their peers. 
And then our third program we do is we call Unity in the Community. It's two phases. One of our events are Unity Communities, and our other smaller events are called Bullet Free Weekends. We had almost we had over eighty some events already. We have had no conflict. We have well, I guess we have some conflict. We haven't had no violence, and uh, we've been in the most traumatized places. And our thing is, we want to bring begin the healing process for just that area, that ground. We're going to bring love over there, and every time shots are fired. There's a ripple effect that happens throughout the community or whoever heard the shots. You don't even got to see it. But you heard those shots, you have found some of that ripple of sorrow, anger, and grief. So we want to come through and interject into that ripple love and compassion and healing. So that's what these events are about. And uh, so those are our three uh, major programs. We do a lot of other stuff. I could probably talk all day. We go to schools. I do a lot of talking. I'm also a, a, a gang expert, so I work in the court systems. All my clients are somebody who shot and killed somebody. So I'm able to come in there with a whole other perspective and help them already start processing their grief before they even got into the prison system. So, Alina, I know you talked quite a bit about the you know the programs that you and Love and Strong are, are doing right now and the kind of dreams you have for the expansion of those. Is there anything else as we come kind of to the end of our time that you are thinking about or dreaming about specifically for that grief support, you know, of the immediate family, the, the larger community? Like, what do you think is most needed around supporting the grief? The community. We need the community members to truly get involved in the help and save these young men and women because you might think it's not your problem, but look at every community. Gun violence is up across the board. These are unheard of. So it's going to come out to your area. And not only that, bullets don't got no names. Your young kids or your family members could be riding around a car and some guys could start popping off and they hit somebody in your family. And that's what we need from the community to really get involved, to really support this work. Like I got 60 kids. We, we don't have no we don't have no venue to host our events at. Um, we have a hard time with transportation. All our kids are low income. Their clothes are beat up. Like we got so many things that the community could do that don't revolve around giving up their money. Yes, we need money to do the work, but that's like the underlying. Money's just a tool. There's so many other things. You can come and give the kids your expertise. How many people got public speaking skills? How many people are bilingual experts and come in there and tell kids what bilingual is about? How many people know how to do first aid? Come in there and give kids how to turn turn kits because these kids are getting shot. Who want to volunteer their time to our youth to make them better? That's what we're missing in this whole equation is the community's involvement. And it's so sad. When they do get involved, it's too late because it's one of their kids that, that got shot. And now they want to be involved. Now they're sad. And we're going to get them in. We're going to love them. But in my mind, I'm like, man, I wish you'd have came earlier. We might have saved yours. And so that's the biggest message. I can't tell community members enough. We have opportunity to save yours if you come and help save theirs. In all this work that you're doing, Lionel, what are you doing these days to tend to your own grief? Um, that's a good question. So I like to read. You know, I'm an avid reader. I read a lot at nighttime. But my son, my two-year-old, because I have a 19-year-old son. I was in prison his whole life. He was three months when I went to prison. I raised him in the prison room. He's a great man. I'm so, I'm so grateful for my prison time because I was able to become a man, one, 
and two, raise him as a man versus what I was doing. I wouldn't have raised him. He's never been into a fight. If I hadn't went to prison, he'd have multiple fights. I would have made sure of it and that mindset, right? So um, just my son, I spend as much time as my toddler as possible. It brings me so much joy. When he sees me, he lights up like my mother used to light up. He, if I walk, if he walks in the room right now, if I start hiding, he gonna love you to death. But if I jump out that closet, he go, big forget about you. This is dad's <laughs> here now." So it fills my it fills my heart with so much joy, and also to be a resource. I love to help young men who resemble me, because I know how much potential you have. I love to see young men's lights come on. I love to see young men flourish in their talents. It gives me the greatest joy, and it makes me think about myself because I was a very talented young man, but I never knew it. The only person who knew it was my mama. Even my sisters write poetry. I didn't write my first poem until I was like 27, and I used to think I couldn't write poems. I sit on my poem. They was like, who wrote that? Like, sis, I wrote it. It's like, oh, no way you couldn't have wrote that. You don't even write poems. I said, oh, sis, was the first one. She said, oh, this the first one? You need to write a book then. And so I want kids to get their talents early. And I, I, I get so much joy out of that because I know that if you could find your lane, what your individuality is, what your story is, and then we can help reinforce that for you, then you're going to be able to be shine bright like a diamond. You're going to know how to handle your trauma and your grief and your sorrow. Because it's all about making good decisions in those moments, Right? As long as you can make good decisions in those moments, we're hitting home runs. Well, Lionel, thank you so much for taking time out of what I imagine is a very busy schedule, parenting and all the things that you're doing to come in and talk with me today for Grief Out Loud. I've really appreciated our time together. Thank you. It feel good to get it out. I haven't uh, spilt, that, spilt this stuff like this in a while, so I appreciate you having me. Um, let's love your aviance, your wall, what lights the dark. It's the perfect setting. So thank you for having me. I appreciate you. And listeners out there, thank you. I say it each and every time. The show would not mean what it does without you tuning in. If you uh, want to share an episode with a friend or a family member, we always love that. We also love to hear directly from you. If you want to reach out to me, you can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org, which is D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. That's also our main website where you can find information about our local programming, all of our free downloadable uh, resources like activity sheets and tip sheets, and each and every episode of Grief Out Loud. I'm always excited to share that our podcast is sponsored in part by the Chester Stephan Endowment Fund. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time.